Welcome to the Two Tribes podcast, where each week we bring you the real stories of Australian founders and investors, the two tribes of entrepreneurship. If you like what you hear, give us a rating on iTunes or follow us at Two Tribes News on Twitter. This series of Two Tribes is supported by Tankstream Labs. Tankstream Labs is more than just a workspace for Australian founders, it's a place to work on your passion. TSL, like Two Tribes, brings real founders and investors together. On to today's podcast. Thank you. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. So before we get deep into First Run, can you just give us a bit of background about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure, thank you. Um, so obviously for those that can't see me, uh, I'm in my, <laughs> I mean, I'm 50. I've worked for a, a couple of banks in my life, uh, but I have also worked in a number of industries that have been radically disrupted by technology particularly telecommunications and the media. And uh, for those of you who were aware of or remember the dot-com boom and bust, um, I, I sort of cut my startup teeth, as it were, working for startup telcos in uh, the late 90s and media companies in, in after the, the dot-com crash when the web radically transformed the traditional media industry. So I lived through that as well. So um, I guess I've got the banking creds, the startup creds, and the media, and I see all of those things coalescing in financial services as well. And um, so that really led me to, a few years ago, starting the FinTech Summit, the FinTech Awards, as a way to get into the industry and meet the people I needed to meet with the ultimate goal of setting up First Run, which is my you know, core passion, um, and and that's the fintech startup that I'm, um, you know, raising funding for and bringing to market uh, this year. Very nice. And before we get into first run, still, I mean, the dot com boom is a is a myth and a mystery for many people. Right, right. And um, can you give us a sense of what it was like going through it, and probably some of the key lessons you learned sure. that you think you're now going to apply to your business? Yes, yes. Look. Uh, it, it was, I'm sure it was like doing an MBA, but in the workplace. Um, it was a very exciting period, and what it, it taught me a number of things. Firstly, that capitalism can move really, really fast, and that can be a great opportunity for some people that want to be at the forefront of change. It can also be um, a real disaster zone if you don't move fast enough. But it can also be really challenging because there is a disconnect between the speed at which technology is moving, the speed at which technology can be adopted by uh, publics, the, the public and business, and the speed at which investors think that it's going to get adopted by the public and the following revenues and profits. So I think the dot-com, the, one of the big lessons I learned from the dot-com boom was this disconnect between what companies, particularly listed companies, whether it was on ASX, NASDAQ, um, New York Stock Exchange or, or London Stock Exchange, what they were saying to the investors and what investors were interpreting that. Um, I remember having conversations with investors who really weren't technology specialists, but were caught up in the hype. Yeah. And when you get to this sort of hype phase, you know, logic goes out the window and and that can be a sort of a dangerous um, place to be. But that's the nature of markets. That is, that is just part and parcel of the way that markets uh, boom and bust. And I think, you know, when you become an entrepreneur, you have to realize that 
that markets do go in waves and there are sometimes there are good times and there are sometimes a bad time. Sometimes you're in favour, sometimes you're out of favour, sometimes people understand your business and they then they don't and it really is your job to communicate to people honestly and accurately and fairly and and really try to give them a picture of where your business is at. Yes. Um, and I so I think as, as well as the other big lesson being the technology changing everything, and um, and it really has. And I, and I think if you have a long-term perspective, technology has and will radically change every single industry, every single sector on the planet, and other planets. I mean, there's there's space. There's you know Elon Musk doing space travel. So um, you know we we are we are going to space, and and technology is taking us there. With that context in mind, obviously you think now in Australia is a good time for startups. Yeah, look, well, that's right. Look, I, I had, I, I think there are a number of things that have, um, as it were, come good. First of all, um, it is relatively easy to start a business. It, you know, you can register a business. I think for two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, so, so that's a good thing. Get, getting up and running is a good thing. Um, is, is relatively easy, but. It, particularly being a startup in the technology sector. So whether you're biotech, fintech, ad tech, whatever tech it is, the, the cost of entry into being a potentially globally scalable tech business has radically fallen. So when I, I was telling you that in, in the 1990s I'm at this telco startup, yeah. I mean, if you wanted to build your company website, you had to buy your own servers, you had to sort of hire people who are really expensive yeah. now you can buy cloud services you can hire freelancers in you know any country around the world to do animations or think different things for you yeah. and and the modern you know modern technology and 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 first rung is a google stack um and we use a lot of uh, google software services uh, like firebase anglia um and that that they are designed to be globally scalable and modular so you can work on different projects and, and fit things in. You don't have to rebuild your tech stack right from the ground up. So there's never been a better time to be a startup. And that's not just Australia, that's around the world. Sure. And so then let's come to First Run. So mm. can you tell our listeners a little bit about what First Run is? Sure, sure. So First Run is a fintech startup, um, but really we are all about helping millennials save up for the deposit for their first home. And how are you going to help? Obviously, a hot topic. It's a hot topic, and it's a hot topic in in many OECD countries. So you know, we've done we've done focus groups and research in the UK, the US, Hong Kong, you know, Middle East, Europe. It, it's it's an issue for everyone, uh, partly because interest rates have been so long, so low for so long, and and all that sort of investor money has flooded into things like property markets stock markets and you know asset prices are, are high so what we we're not in market yet so there is there is part of our service that you might call our secret source um, but essentially we help it's, it's a mobile first platform and and we help people save up for the deposit uh, over a period of years we realize that if you're saving up for a deposit on a house in sydney if the average house price is say eight hundred thousand dollars uh, you are probably going to need sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars. So it is not. It is, it is a significant sum of money, and we want to help you understand how you get to that destination. And we understand that it is not going to be easy. So 
we are, if you like, uh, an app that helps you achieve your savings-based goal. Mm. Obviously, in this case, this is, for, for most people in the world, this is the biggest financial decision and purchase they will make. Yes. Um, and we do realize that there is going to be an ongoing relationship that we will need for our, with, our, with our customers, who we call climbers. Um, so we're sort of building up this idea that you're climbing up to the summit. Um, so we are using um, gamification and loyalty programs to help people achieve, achieve that big goal. And so that giving away the secret sauce, mm. is it predominantly about using behavioural change to get people to save more or is there something, a different tact being used there? Uh, so it's both. So behavioural change is very important and um, I originally did my degree in economics and obviously there is a component in economics which is looking at whether you call it anthropology, um, whether you call it how societies change over time. And one of the things that I've noticed, certainly in the last, say, 25, 30, maybe even more years, is that people have become um, more marketed to by banks and, and financial services companies. Uh, if I talk to my parents and my grandparents, they thought it great that they had a bank account. Um, they never even thought they would have credit cards. Um, you know, the... The moment my daughter was 18, she got an unbelievable amount of mail through the post yeah. offering offering pre-approved credit cards. Um, so the, the day you turn 18, in, in pretty much any country these days, they want you to get into debt. Yeah. Now, I understand that, you know, as our economies are opened up, as trade is liberalised, uh, these kinds of things are available to more people and that, in many instances, is great for economic growth. But there has been this sort of ballooning in the idea that we should all go out and spend, spend, spend. And if you are a millennial and if you want to uh, get into your first property, unless your parents are, are incredibly well, or grandparents are wealthy, and they can either buy that apartment or that first home or they give you the deposit, so the bank of mum and dad. Mm. Um, but there's, there's, the bank of mum and dad is great for about 10% of millennials. So yeah. the other 90%, the other 90% of people have got to work hard, yeah. and they've got to have um, help, and 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 our app will be part of that journey for them. Um, so we do have some uh, sort of additional ways that we help people save, which which because we're not in market yet. Um, I'll come back and talk more when we're sure. in market. Um, but there is a large amount of behavioural science in, involved in what we do. Um, but it is very much grounded in the philosophy of saving is a good thing. Yeah. And we want to encourage people to think that way. And so how did you come up with the idea? What was yeah, look, good question. So um, I've got two kids and, um, you know, from the age of about 15 or 16, they, they both started to talk about... Um, Dad, how are we going to afford to buy a house? And it's it's very very it's a big issue in that age group um, that people call millennials um, because the multiple of um, income to house price has gone from when I was when my wife and I were buying our first home it was uh, three times joint income. Um, and it's now, you know, eight, nine times joint income. And in places like 
some places in Sydney and Melbourne, it's, you know, 13, 14 times joint income. So, yes, I do understand that interest rates are historically low, but that won't stay that way forever. And so, even if, even if house prices do come off a bit, I think we're in a period in history where things have changed. So there is this idea that the new normal, the new normal is unaffordable yes. for for ninety percent of millennials. And there, there's, a, I mean, there, I think there's a political angle to that. And and I'll talk a minute in a minute about the housing affordability summit that we did. But in terms of what we'd like to do with first rung, we believe that there is a solution. There needs to be a solution that the private sector can deliver. And we don't think that banks are focused on that. And we don't think that governments are focused on that. We think the tax concessions that they give for people who have investment properties are skewing the playing field towards people that have 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 homes and not people that want to get into their first home. So I am very, very passionate and motivated about changing that both for what I think is going to be a, a societal good. I think it's important that everyone who can afford to own a home has the chance, ability and opportunity to own their own home because owning your own home is a great place to raise your family and it is the glue that binds, binds our communities together. When people own their own home, they look after their home, they look after their family, they look after their neighbours, they take care of their community. That is a proven fact and we are moving away from that and that's dangerous. And why do you think that banks aren't incentivised? I mean, in some ways you would think the more homeowners they get to write, the better business for them. Why would they not want to help customers save up for their first home? Bank, banks face this dilemma at the moment, which is that about two-thirds of their market capitalisation is derived from residential mortgages and investor home loans. And so they're the guinea pig on the hamster wheel. They have to keep writing more and more loans to keep justifying their share prices and keep paying out their dividends. And in Australia, the banks make... $30 billion a year in profit, I think, maybe more. Um, and they pay 80% of that out in dividends. So they are caught in, in this sort of cycle of needing to write more and more home loans. So as house prices go up and the value of loans goes up, both to the investor community and all home buyers, banks don't see a problem because they are part of the rising tide. The problem is with the millennial generation who feel that they are being treated unfairly and banks don't care about that. And so when, when are you hoping to launch first run? When, when can uh, so, get some hope that they can... <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, obviously, just for people not in the fintech sector, um, and, and I describe fintech as being... Um, technology that allows financial services firms to provide services direct to the consumer so not just being a supplier to the banks you know it means that first run can um, provide services to consumers um, and in Australia and in and indeed in all uh, OECD countries uh, markets for financial services are heavily regulated 
and you need to have some form of license to operate, whether you know whether it's a credit license, um, whether it's a broking license, whether it's a um, you know a lending license. So we're in the process of getting um, what's called our AFSL in Australia, and um, we're also doing that in the UK and the US. Um, that's a fairly time-consuming process. So again, you know, getting back to my days, my experience in media and, and telco in, in the last sort of 25 years. If you had a service, and whether you're Facebook, Twitter, or whoever, you know, you, you built it and you went to market. Yeah. You didn't need a license from anyone to go and do that. Um, financial service is different because it's all about money. And money is the thing that is, that is regulated and is different. So we are in the process of getting those licenses, particularly in Australia. Uh, we hope that that will come through by the end of the year and we will be launching by the end of the year. So I'd be delighted to come back yeah, and, and talk to, to, to Two Tribes again um, uh, just after our launch. It'd be great to have you. And why the choice to go straight into two markets instead of just focusing on Australia, for example? Well, that's a very good question. So uh, for us, I mean, I, I started my career with a global bank. So I, I think if you've worked in a, a global industry, you tend to think globally. And I think one of the things that we wanted to do was uh, to both challenge ourselves to that we could do it. And, and secondly, also think about how... Um, the fact is that we're creating a globally scalable tech platform. So our platform doesn't think in, it thinks in terms of nation states because it's got different currencies sure. and we've got different payments providers and all those sorts of things. Yeah. But the core technology doesn't go, oh, I'm in Australia. It, yeah. it, this is the bizarre thing. Financial services, very, very heavily regulated by nation state organizations. So like ASIC in this yeah. country. Um, but the technology isn't. So we just thought to ourselves, why? Why limit ourselves to the way that financial services people historically limit themselves? We need to think globally. So part of it was to sort of make a statement both to the to ourselves, uh, to to our millennial customers uh, that we do want to be global. We do think this is a global issue. We do want to champion and be advocates for the cause of housing affordability around the world. Um, and also, I think. Um, Although the regulatory environments are very uh, are different in different countries, there's a number of similarities. So if we're doing the hard yards on getting regulatory approval in one country, a lot of that work can be taken um, into, into other countries as well. And, and the final point is, Australia is a big country, but it has a small population. So the challenge in Australia is that the, the big banks have a vice-like grip on, on consumers and it's a population of 24 million people, whereas you look at the UK, it's got a population of 65, and the US, you know, population of, say, 330, 340. Yeah. Um, so in terms of uh, the ability of a startup to generate revenue and new customers and, and get a certain amount of traction, um, the UK and the US are very attractive markets. And they're obviously English-speaking, and there's, you know, very uh, similar sort of culture, rule of law, and, and so there's a lot of reasons why a, a small startup like us would want to think about those other, those other English-speaking markets as well. And, and obviously, I'm not discounting Canada and New Zealand, but yeah, the idea right. is that you go to those bigger markets where you know, um, 
uh, you, you know, you can get more, more traction. Makes sense. And so for anyone else that wants to start a fintech, right. particularly in, in a space like yours yeah. where there's licensing required mm. and there's a lengthy process to that, um, just talk us through what needs to be put in place. How do you make sure that you've got enough capital to do that, to wait out the time? Mm. Um, so that more companies can do it and aren't just deterred by the lengthy sure. license process. Sure. So the first point to mention is that being in fintech uh, means that you have higher setup costs because you've got to, e- even if you have one of your co-founders as a lawyer who has experience in financial services, you usually have to go out and find a number of people um, whether they're paralegals or, or, or lawyers to to help you in in this sector to get regulatory approval so and and it's not just hiring people to do some of the work it's also just the time it takes and so you've got to fund yourself so you know it's it's very challenging for people that maybe are you know, mid-career, they they might even be very, very high up in an organisation. But, you know, if you've got kids at, say, private school or universities or you've got a big mortgage, yeah. then it's very, very difficult for you to go, especially if you've got a, you know, um, um, a partner that's um, perhaps looking after the kids or something, to say, I'm I'm going to go to a, a start-up and, yeah. you know, my, my pay is going to go from 30 grand a month to nothing. Um those conversations are incredibly difficult and don't tend to happen. So the first thing is to understand, do your business plan and understand what you're going to be up for. And you may well have to, um, you know, do what I did, which was run another business for a couple of years while you get things into place. So during that two-year period, I was, I was working on, you know, um, finding the right co-founder. So that, that took me a long time. I went through a couple of people that I really liked and, and, and knew very well, but one went off to Hong Kong and one was the example that I gave you. He was very senior at a bank, yeah. but his kids were at university and he just did not want to go from a very, very high income to a startup income. Yeah. Um, and so there's lots of considerations like that. I sure. think that you if, you if you are an aspiring founder or co-founder, you should really think about your founding team, the founding business plan, the finances you've got in place to get you to the seed round of money. Mm. And and how did you find your co-founder that you are now working with? Well, this is this is the bizarre thing is because I, I, he's he's a guy that I met in the telco, um, you know, dot com boom days that we'd worked together right. um, over twenty five years ago. So uh, it just so happened when I was looking. He was at another startup, right. and so um, that startup finished, and then I just, I just knew. He, he we got on so well yeah. when we were uh, back in the telco days, um, and we'd stayed in touch. You know, we, I know his wife, he knows my wife, and right. we, we know each other's kids. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a good synergy there. We know each other very, very well, and that's, that's also important, right? Because you're, you're going through a very stressful thing you know creating a startup is very very stressful you've got to know your your co-founders um you know good points and bad points yeah and so i assume with a lawyer in one hand and you with a broad range of banking oh no he's he's tech tech. so so that i mean that's the other thing that i think you should you should consider 
as as an aspiring um, startup founder or co-founder is that one of you needs to have the tech skills and credentials. So, you know, whether you have, you know, two or three founders or even four, um, you know, whether you want someone with sort of banking, media, tech, legal, that sort of spread of, of skill sets, but one of them has to be tech because tech is so crucial. I mean, it's fintech. So, so the, the tech is, the tech is the, the ultimately the machine that drives this business. And there's often a debate about this, and we've, mm. we've had different guests that say, no, it's okay, you can do it without tech, or you can, you know, people like yourself that say you must have it. Um, what, what do you think it is about the requirement for a tech co-founder? Is it to be able to control or guide the development much closer, faster, more efficiently? Or what do you think is the, the, the key reason you need that tech co-founder? Good, good question. Um, Tech is changing so fast. Um, tech is so complicated. Tech can be so expensive. It can be more expensive than lawyers. Um, you can make some seriously bad mistakes if you don't understand the tech. The tech also can change. And so if you don't understand the tech, even if you ha- think you have the money to hire that talent and bring that talent in, you may start off with someone, um, but what's to what's to prevent that um, person that you've hired going to join another tech startup or founding their own? So what you really need to consider is that this is this is the this is tech startup. So fintech, it it is crucial that you own your own tech stack. So no one's going to invest in a business if you don't own your stack. You don't know your stack, and they're going to give you a lower, much lower valuation if you've had to hire someone to build it, because that's a risk, and investors don't want to have risks that are like that. So that's such a big risk to have for a business. So um, yes, maybe you should start off with a, you know, what they call a wireframe or something like that yeah. that you might have hired someone to build for. Twenty, thirty thousand dollars, or whatever it is, yeah. and use that to bring in a tech co-founder. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's crucial. As soon as you can, one of the either one of the co-founders or one of the senior equity holders has to be a tech person. Okay. Well, we might move into a common set of questions we ask. Sure. So first up, what's your most hated startup cliche that you hear, or piece of advice you could give to startups? I. I you know, I think I meet you, know, you meet so many people in the startup world, uh, particularly if you and I do a lot of events. Mm-hmm. I put on a lot of events. Um, the world it's changing so fast. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I've come across a cliche that I find annoying. Um, I would say you try and learn from everything. Um, yeah, so I I, I don't. I don't think I think the answer to that question is I haven't actually come across anything that I find annoying. Yeah. I, I, I take everything as a learning experience and um, if I, I suppose if you think something's annoying you move on and, and so the good thing about the startup community is that people are very helpful they do share a lot yeah. um, yes you do meet some eccentric characters um, but but I haven't met anyone that's 
that I found annoying. And, or, and is yeah. it that you haven't found a phrase or advice that you deem annoying because there's a bit of truth to every cliche, and so you just take, you know, it in its in its steps? I, I I guess so. I mean, the the thing is, I I suppose the I suppose the annoying thing is. It's you meet someone and they say, "Oh no, start in Australia. Don't go overseas until you've done Australia." Then the next person you meet goes, "Yes, you should definitely do three markets." <laughs> so the annoying thing is, I suppose, yeah. that the, the advice you get can be so conflicting and so different and so diverse. Yeah. How do you judge? And you know, sometimes it's this is why people need and have mentors yeah. and and have you know. Advise an advisory board that they can they can you can sort of go yeah like I've met three people I've got three different sort of advices I'm really a bit challenged by what to do can I bounce these ideas off you and yeah. see what you think and then you have a more considered nuanced deeper discussion about what those divergent pieces of advice have been and and what might be the best one yeah and um, what would you recommend as some of the best sources information to get started in any text yeah look well look I that's that's a really really good question so one of the things that I first absolutely loved and it sort of started for me at about six or seven years ago I started going to more networking events in the tech sector yeah. and that is a great way to meet really nice people um, you can have converse, soft conversations with them about ideas and and what they're doing, what you're doing, and whether you go through uh, things like Meetup and you just type in your sector, whether it's ad tech or fintech, and you find the nearest uh, Meetup group, or you go, there's, a, there's an excellent Meetup group in Sydney called Innovation Bay. It is, look, off the cuff, it is, it is a really, really good networking event. They, have, they bring in uh, founders and CEOs of tech businesses and they talk them through things. Um, consume as much media as you can, so read up as much, listen to podcasts, um, you know, get out there and, and ask people, um, you know, where do you get information? Because the media is a great source of information, uh, but but it's it's like sucking on a hose pipe. Yeah. You, it's, it's endless and, it, and it's, you've got to have a filtering process somehow. Um, so look, there's a number of sort of publications that I read daily, weekly, you know, whether it's from the Fin Review, whether it's, you know, The Economist or Wired magazine, those sorts of things to sort of, some of it helps you and some of it inspires you yeah. and some of it educates you. And I think you've got to think about your media consumption in that way. Yeah, yeah. good advice. And uh, last but not least, what's, what's been your most unexpected source of inspiration into your startup journey or, or your career in startups? Uh, I would say my kids. Because, you know, if I didn't have kids, I wouldn't be doing first run because it was my kids that said, how do we afford a house? And so um, not only has it been a wonderful uh, experience of having kids and raising kids, um, but, you know, fortuitously, it was their comments and the comments of them and their friends talking with me and, you know, my co-founder uh, about their issues and having that open relationship with our kids that led us into first run. So that's the answer to that question. And on that note, thank you very much, Glenn. Excellent. Pleasure Thanks, Angle. Cheers.